Uh, Since October, you've probably heard a slogan repeated in the news, from the river to the sea. Uh, It comes on the heels of war between Hamas and Israel, and its meaning depends on who you ask. Activists say it's simply a call for peace and equality in Palestine. But you press a little further, and that so-called peace comes on terms that not all would agree are based on truth, and in some cases grow from ideologies that cause more division, not less. Ask Hamas, and they will say it's a call to raise the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine, even if that means obliterating the Jews. This is more blatantly wicked and murderous. On the other side is the ruling party in Israel, led by Benjamin Netanyahu. He built his platform that once touted, Between the sea and the Jordan, there will only be Israeli sovereignty. Anything less frustrates the prospect of peace. And largely, the international community has backed this plan and developed things like the two-state solution. Still, lasting peace from these man-made political solutions is fleeting. Broken people always produce broken solutions. The Israel-Hamas war is but another display of the sin that affects all humanity. Left to ourselves, peace will never prosper from the river to the sea or anywhere else. Even where societies experience some measure of law and order, it's far from the perfect and often short-lived. On the grand scale of world history, peace and justice feel like fleeting things. It only further proves that Humanity needs a savior. We need someone to deliver us. Well, today, Matthew quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, a prophecy about a king whose rule will extend not from the river to the sea, but from the river to the ends of the earth. And he will free people from their oppression. He will govern with righteousness he will bind a new humanity a new humanity together in unity but contrary to human expectations he saves us not by threat of sword but by willingly humbly coming to give his life on our behalf let's read together beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 21 Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Time plays an important role when discerning a story's focus. Uh, when an author uses more text to cover less time, that often alerts you to the story's focus. And such a change in Narrative time happens when we hit chapter 21 of Matthew. The gospel had began slowly, didn't it? With the genealogy and birth of Jesus. But from chapters 3 to 20, Matthew covers about three years. So with eight chapters left, you'd expect another year at least. But that's not what happens. These final chapters cover only one week. A lot more text covering very little time. Matthew's story draws nearer to its climactic moment here. And by writing this way, Matthew, or better, the Holy Spirit, grabs our attention, pausing at length on this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. But with that shift also comes some more blatant acts by Jesus in which he reveals his identity as Messiah, God's special king. One of those acts we study today as Jesus sits on a donkey's colt and rides into Jerusalem. You see, before in the gospel, he would kind of keep things hush-hush when people, oh, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he would tell them not not to tell anybody But now, all of a sudden, the people are declaring him king publicly, and he welcomes their praises. So there's been a shift as he's heading nearer and nearer to the cross. Why? What sort of man does this? Is he just plain crazy? Or are we meant to see something of profound significance in Jesus? Is Jesus really who he says he was? Lord, Savior, King. What does Jesus want us to see when he rides on a donkey's colt? Because Jesus does want us to see something about his identity. He is being very intentional here. He planned this event. He initiates it by sending two disciples in verse 1, and he tells them exactly what to do, step by step. Go into the village. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. 
If anyone uh, says anything to you, you shall say the Lord's need them. The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, perhaps Jesus prearranged things with the donkey's owner, the owner likely himself being a disciple. Or perhaps Jesus is acting on his omniscience. He just knew the donkey was there and how the owners would respond. Either way, Matthew's focus is Jesus' lordship over the entire situation. People aren't controlling Jesus. They're not forcing him to be king. There were times before when some had tried that, but Jesus wouldn't let them. When he chooses to enter Jerusalem, he does it on his terms. He does it in his timing, and he does it in his own special way as he submits to his Father's will. He is Lord over these events. It's also clear that he didn't need a donkey to make the rest of the trip. I mean, the gospel has him traveling hundreds of miles on foot for three years. His legs aren't tired. It's how you got around. What, he's got like a mile left to go into town and he needs a donkey? Mark's gospel says Jesus would make use of the donkey and then he would send it back immediately. Just had to borrow it a couple hours. Jesus is being deliberate. He's acting out an important sign before he calmed the sea to prove that he is God of the Exodus. He healed to prove that he is Lord of Sabbath. He changed water into wine to prove he brings the messianic banquet. So also here, Jesus is going to act out another sign to reveal his identity. And that identity becomes clearer with the interpretation of this sign in verses 4 and 5. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And I want to spend some time there so that we understand more fully who Jesus is claiming to be. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. One of the last of the 12 minor prophets. Zechariah chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, it starts on page 796, but we'll spend most of our time on page 797. If you're newer to the Christian faith, Perhaps someone told you to start by reading one of the Gospels. Maybe you're reading the New Testament books and finding yourself learning all kinds of wonderful things about Jesus. But you also need to know that that New Testament you're reading didn't rise in a vacuum. 
There's a whole lot of things that happened before Matthew 1, and you will not fully understand Jesus until you start connecting things in the New Testament to the rich storyline of the Old Testament. The things you are loving about Jesus now, they will become even clearer, greater, and more beautiful to you as you delve into the Scriptures of old. I think our vision of Jesus' identity here is helped tremendously when we turn to Zechariah 9 and look at a few of his promises. In Zechariah 9, the first six verses show how God will eventually cut down the arrogant nations. He is going to judge the world. Verses 7 to 8 uh, then promise that God would show mercy to a remnant among the nations. All right, so you, you start there in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach uh, and Damascus. And is its resting place, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire." Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. Now, if you notice to verse 6, that's where we're seeing the God... He's humbling the nations. He's coming. He will come to judge uh, the nations. Uh, and then in verses 7 to 8, you'll notice a shift right after this. He says, uh, so he's talking about Philistia halfway through 7, and he says, it too shall be a remnant for our God. Isn't that amazing? It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. And then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro and no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Okay, so there in verses 7 to 8, God is promising that he would show mercy to a remnant among the nations and he would do this by taking away their idols. He would make them part of his people and he would even bring them into his presence. But the question becomes, how can God just welcome them so freely? Right? When this remnant is guilty like the rest, how can he be righteous and not also punish them? So verses 9 to 11 supply the answer. God's special king was coming to do a unique work. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. All right, daughter of Zion is a phrase often used for the people of God, the covenant people of God, right? The ones who are now including the nations. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Verse 9 begins with this call to rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. For years, they've known only oppression from their enemies. God's hand of judgment has rested on their nation. They are weary every day from the consequences of sin. They are much like us. Not only as we observe the brokenness around us, but feel the brokenness within us. And yet here, God's people are called to rejoice. Why? What what makes all the difference? Your king is coming to you, he says. Well, what king? Over the centuries, God's people have seen lots of kings. Why should this one lead us to rejoice? Well, we're told in verse 9 that he is righteous. Israel's kings didn't have the greatest track record. I mean, even Even the good guys, like David and Josiah, had their own rebellious moments. But this king differs from all the others. There's no impulse to do anything other than please God. He would uphold God's moral standard. He would obey God's will fully. 2 Samuel 23 says that that when a king rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The righteous rule of this king will dawn like the morning light. He is also victorious. Verse 9 in the ESV describes him as having salvation. Now, there's a passive idea in this word here implying that the king himself would be saved. That's not to say he needed saving from sin. We just saw that he's righteous. Rather, it's like saying that God would vindicate him. Because he obeys God completely, God chooses to vindicate him. Uh, We might think also here of Psalm 22, where the Davidic king is, is crying out, For God to save him from his enemies. The king has been faithful in the face of affliction. This is the same psalm that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's he's being faithful even in the face of affliction. And as a result, God rescues his king, giving him authority over the nations towards the end of Psalm 22. Salvation comes with this king because he's the only one God is pleased to vindicate. That's the idea. This king is also humble. Verse 9 says, he's humble. Other translations have poor or afflicted. Uh, We found the same word, we we find the same word in Zechariah chapter 7 verse 10, and it's used alongside widows, orphans, and sojourners. 
And so the point here is that he doesn't come for his people while clinging to the privileges of royalty. He actually trades his riches for rags. The same word also appears in the Psalms where the Davidic king is afflicted for his obedience. Likewise, this king, his obedience leads him to to become poor and experience affliction. He chooses the uncomfortable road of suffering if it means showing his people favor. Uh, When it says at the beginning, Behold, your king is coming to you, the Hebrew idiom means that he's coming for you. He doesn't come like other kings who who just want power at the people's expense. He comes for your benefit. He goes low to identify with your state, to know your sufferings, and to pursue your best interests. This king is also a peacemaker. It says that he comes mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Often in Scripture, believe it or not, kings would ride on donkeys. David's got a donkey. Solomon's got a donkey. Very common for kings to to ride on donkeys. But the language here is actually pretty unique to Genesis 49, verse 11. Genesis 49, verse 11 is is that prophecy that a king from Judah's line would bind his colt bind his colt to the choicest vine, meaning his coming would establish an abundant kingdom on earth. I mean, the vines would be so rich, just tie your, tie your donkey up to it, right? Let, let him eat what he wants. That king of Genesis 49 seems to be this king of Zechariah 9. But also notice the contrast between verses 9 and 10 here. He talks about this king coming humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, full of the donkey. In verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse. The horse, the war horse, right? The horse in verse 10 is an instrument of war, not the donkey. Yeah, kings rode on donkeys, but not to war. They rode them in times of peace. The point in verse 9 is that this king comes not for the purpose of war, but to bring peace. And that's observed even by him riding the foal of a donkey. Luke chapter 19 verse 30 tells us that it was a colt on which no one has ever yet set. So it's untrained. It is not tame. And yet, as D.A. Carson puts it, in the midst of this excited crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah. So he is righteous. He is victorious. He is humble. And he is a peacemaker. But what is his mission? 
What does it include? Well, Zechariah explains that too. He will bring peace to all nations. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. So his mission includes removing war from the people. But his peace includes more than just the absence of war. Sometimes we... We don't have very good definition, very full definitions of peace. Yes, what is peace? And a lot of times people say, well, it's the absence of war. Well, that's not all it is. It is that. But it's also when everything is brought under the rule of Jesus. And it's active, that rule of Jesus is actively working itself out in the relationships of the people. And that's what happens here. His presence creates new realities in the community like unity. Right? Israel was once divided against itself, represented here by Ephraim and Jerusalem, the north and south and southern kingdoms. But notice how these two names are now parallel to one another in the text. And the point is that God's covenant people would no longer be divided, but they would be one. And this peace wouldn't be limited to Israel. It says that he would speak peace to the nations. But also notice here, he doesn't silence them with a sword. He silences them with his word. He brings peace to the world among the nations with his word. He will also cover the earth with God's rule. Verse 10 says that his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The river formed one of the borders of the promised land. And what he's saying here is that his rule advances beyond the promised land to encompass all peoples. The same language appears in Psalm 72, verse 8. Psalm 72 is a a prayer uh, asking God to give justice to his anointed, his, his anointed king in David's line. Every request speaks to a future king who, who so exercises God's righteousness on earth that everything prospers, the poor are lifted up, the arrogant are destroyed, and all the nations then gather to come and worship this king until the, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And right in the middle of Psalm 72, we get this same sentence here, only it's spoken as a prayer. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That prayer was written in Solomon's day, over 400 years before Zechariah writes these words. So imagine the people of God crying for centuries, God, send this king, bring him to us. And then God answers, your king is coming. Spoken to them like it's already in the process of happening. He is coming. That's how certain his coming will be. And then further... It says, he will liberate prisoners based on the blood of God's covenant. So verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. A waterless pit was the 
empty cisterns that nations would use to sometimes put people into captivity. They don't hold water anymore, serve as a great place to throw people. A waterless pit refers here, Zechariah is using it as a symbol of exile. It's a reminder of their captivity under God's judgment. Now, when Zechariah is writing this, they've already come back to the land. They've already come back to Jerusalem. But that was just the first stage in their rescue. You see, other enemies still held them captive. Enemies far worse than pagan nations. Babylon could throw them, a, throw them in a pit. But their own sin would put them in hell. And God promises here their final and full deliverance. And he will do this through the blood of my covenant with you. Our sin before God brings about death. The only way God could relate to sinful people was through another death in our place. Through the shedding of blood. And so on several occasions, he sealed covenants with blood. This is especially the case in Exodus 24, verse 8, which is the other place in Scripture where this this phrase appears. It only appears there, Exodus 24, and it appears... uh, Here, and then I think in Luke's gospel at the Lord's Supper. This is so so Exodus 24 8 is where Moses ratifies the law covenant by sprinkling the people with blood. The only problem is that Israel couldn't keep their end of the covenant. Repeatedly they fail. They deserve God's curse of death, not his blessing. That's what the The blood represented. You don't fulfill your obligation to the covenant, you die. Unless someone dies in your place. So they deserve the curse of death, not God's blessing. And yet, it says here that he's still going to free them based on the blood of my covenant. Well, how can that be? With all their sin. Right? God's commitment to save these captives presses us forward to another and more permanent covenant, it seems. Zechariah seems to envision a day when better blood would be spilt in association with this king's coming. Only then would the shackles of sin and death be shattered once and for all. Only then would people know their true freedom. So these are the reasons for Zion's children to rejoice at the king's arrival. He comes for their benefit, to bring peace to the nations, to cover the earth with God's rule, and to liberate them through the blood of the covenant. And there's only one king who fits the bill. Only one man who has the character to accomplish all this. And when Jesus Christ sits on that colt and rides into Jerusalem, he is saying, I am that king. Was he lying? Was he crazy for saying so? I mean, no. Read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus in the Gospels and you will see that Jesus is righteous. 
Nobody can find any wrong in him. At every turn, he pleases God. Read and you will find that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus brings us both peace with God and peace with one another. In fact, the peace he gives, he says in John, it's better than the the kind of peace the world gives. Read and you will find that Jesus is humble. As Emmanuel, as God incarnate, he has rights to be seen as glorious, and yet he set aside those rights and becomes poor for our sake. He enters Jerusalem not like Muhammad entered Mecca with a sword and army. He enters to give his own life for others. He becomes afflicted even to the point of death on a cross in our place. The curse of death that we deserved, he took upon himself. His blood is better than what Moses sprinkled on the people at Sinai. Because his blood truly liberates from the power of sin and establishes a new covenant that has better promises. Read and you will find that Jesus is also victorious. Yes, a few days after these events, his earthly ministry ends in a bloody Roman crucifixion. But given the rest of Matthew's gospel, we also know that God saved this king by raising him from the dead. God vindicated Jesus and God gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the king who brings peace to the nations. Already he's establishing God's rule from the river to the ends of the earth. And he welcomes people into his reign through the blood that he gave on their behalf. Now it's true, not everything mentioned by Zechariah has been accomplished yet. The ultimate fulfillment awaits Jesus' second coming. But the coming of his final kingdom and glory is just as certain as his first coming in humility. His first coming is evidence that God was faithful to his word. He sent his king just as he said he would through the mouth of Zechariah. The same will be true of him extending God's rule from sea to sea. Jesus is the king of Zechariah 9. Jesus is the king who deserves our allegiance and praises. So what is your response? To Jesus. Have you recognized Jesus as king? Have you welcomed his rule into your life? Is his coming something that you rejoice in and that you celebrate? You know, not everyone responds the way that his followers do in verse 9. You see, the crowds from Galilee have witnessed Jesus' miracles. They've recently seen him heal the two blind men. The two blind men, remember, that were, that were crying, have mercy on us, son of David. Right There, they tried to, hey, y'all, y'all keep quiet. Y'all keep over there. But now, they've joined the blind men, saying, Hosanna, right, to the son of David. Their understanding isn't complete, but they have had their eyes further opened to who Jesus really is. In verse 11, others from this crowd recognize him as the prophet Jesus. Their understanding, again, isn't complete. But what they do know moves them to praise Jesus and to listen to him. Others aren't so welcoming. 
Who is this? They say in verse 10. It's rather anticlimactic. Daughter Zion should be rejoicing. Their king has come. Jesus' fame had spread well enough that people in Jerusalem knew of his teachings and his miracles. Earlier in the gospel, Pharisees and scribes had come from Jerusalem to see what Jesus was all about. Others had come from Jerusalem and all around Judea to follow Jesus around while he was performing these miracles. And yet all they can say is, who's this? Perhaps this is why Matthew tweaks Zechariah's quotation slightly here. Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Matthew simply says, Say to the daughter of Zion. He leaves a question hanging in the air. Will Zion rejoice? Is she ready for him? Indeed, she was not. Religious leaders will soon question Jesus' authority. They will lead others to reject Jesus as well. They will not welcome his rule with these crowds from Galilee. Jerusalem will despise him and sentence him to death. But again, this too was part of God's plan. Jesus knew what he was getting into. He had already told the disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Jesus knew it. He knew the uproar it would cause by sitting on that donkey. He knew the offense that it would cause by riding in this way among those who were weak, whom he had healed, and they were singing his praises. He knew how perturbed the religious leaders would be and that it would ultimately cost him his life, and he still went. Humbly, Willingly, he chose that path for our sake. The proper response from us is with the crowds, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the fitting response. Notice how Jesus accepts the crowd's praise as Israel's king. This is the true and proper response. They're using words from Psalm 118, surprisingly, to praise Jesus. Now, we're going to discuss Psalm 118 further when we get to the end of chapter 21, because we're going to quote it there. For now, it's enough to point out that Psalm 118 pictures the same anointed king in David's line. He represents God's people in prayer. He fights to deliver God's people from distress. He's even willing to lay down his life in battle to see his people singing in God's presence. Psalm 118 also compares this king to the stone the builders rejected, but has become the cornerstone. So this king's suffering and rejection established God's work in rescuing his people, and the work is so complete that the king returns from battle with great victory over God's enemies. He brings all the people he represents in battle right up to the gates of righteousness, into the very presence of God, and in great celebratory procession up to the temple mount, and all the people are blessing God's chosen king, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's going on here in this passage? He's taking a procession of his followers up to the temple mount. 
That's where he's going next week. And they are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this crowd uses Psalm 118 to bless Jesus, and he's leading them up to the Temple Mount. Jesus is worthy of such words. The rulers in Israel aren't going to respond properly, but this passage is calling us to respond properly. If Jesus is king, then we owe him our allegiance and praise. Jesus is worthy of such words like Hosanna. Does his reign make a difference to you? When he speaks in the scriptures, do you listen to him? When you look at his righteousness, is that something you desire for your own life? Is it compelling? You say, I love this man. When you look at his humility, are you willing to walk in his steps? How much work do you give to being a peacemaker yourself? Is it your joy to sing Jesus' praise? Hosanna. The word means, Lord, save us. Yahweh, save us. Is this your cry to Jesus? Do you confess him as the son of David? Does Jesus' character and mission lead you to praise him as king? He doesn't need us to make him king. He's heaven's rightful king already. The question is, Does that excite you? Or do you just say, who's this? Don't miss the king. Continue to pray. As you sang earlier today, come thou almighty king. Help us thy praise to sing. Help us to praise, Father all glorious, o'er all victorious. Come and reign over us, ancient of days. Jesus' first coming means that we can truly rejoice. He has come to bring our peace. Does His coming give you hope? He liberates from the tyranny of sin. He comes to stretch God's rule from the river to the ends of the earth. Things won't always be this way. Broken, embattled, dark. I was watching a show this week called All the Light We Cannot See. And this blind girl is fleeing the bombing of Paris or the taking over of Paris by the Nazis. She's fleeing with her father. And she makes this statement to him because they don't know who they can trust. And she says, kindness is dead. Don't know how all the people in all the world became evil all at once. Things won't always be this way because of this king. Things will not always remain dark. This king brings the light. 
He brings justice to the oppressed. Total freedom from our sin. He brings complete healing for our bodies. He will extend God's rule from the river to the ends of the earth. All things will become new. So make him known to all. Peace among the nations comes not by another broken national defense, though that may be important to discuss the short term. Peace among the nations comes not by the sword. It comes only through people submitting to the reign and rule of Jesus. It will come only through a people following their king in humility, willingly laying down their lives for others while singing Hosanna to the Son of David. Why don't we pray together? Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to be our King. And I thank you for the salvation that he offers us so freely because of his death. How grateful for we are for his coming. We confess that he is the son of David. He is the Lord of all. He is the king who will spread your righteous rule from the river to the ends of the earth. And yet we also realize that our hearts are not always ready to receive him. Our wills are not always so welcoming of his rule. We look at his righteousness, his humility, his peaceful spirit, and see how short we fall of honoring your word. Please forgive our sins. Please liberate us from the sinful impulses of our flesh and help us to follow our king more fully. And thank you for his willingness to give his life in our place that we might know true freedom from sin Peace with you, peace with one another. Amen.